welcome. I'm your host, Meli Ramirez, and you are listening to Chingonas Only Club. This is our official first full episode and a continuation of our teaser episode. So if you haven't listened to that yet, please go back and listen so that the story makes sense moving forward. Before we get started, I want to mention a trigger warning. This episode contains accounts on domestic violence, sexual abuse, and other sensitive topics that may not be suitable for a younger audience. With that, get ready, get comfortable, and let's dive in. When my mom finally came to get my brother and I in Mexico, we were around seven and five years old. I knew and recognized that she was my mom, and I could sense the desperation in her touch when she hugged me. But I didn't reciprocate the same feelings. I had detached myself somehow, and she could sense it. I was glad to see her, but in a sense, it felt like hugging a stranger. One you wanted to get to know, but didn't. And I thought to myself, would this feeling ever go away? To get us back to the U.S., my mom hired a coyote, which is the term people use to describe those who smuggle people across the Mexican-U.S. border illegally. A coyote's only goal in mind is to get paid, and the safety of the people entrusted to them is usually secondary if it's a factor at all. Coyotes are known for leaving people to die in the desert, or even taking women and children and selling them into human trafficking. To entrust a coyote with your life is quite possibly one of the most frightening things you can do. For guaranteed safe passage, you must pay extra. Many people spend their entire life savings trying to reunite with their loved ones, and never do. My mom did just that, and she paid this man $2,000 for each one of us so that he could smuggle us through the Tijuana, California entry safely and avoid the desert and river altogether. In today's currency, that would have been about $4,098 per person. Imagine... How does a fruit and hot dog vendor save all that money while also struggling to survive? I think about how often she went without food herself in her commitment to getting her kids back. How she felt on the days when her entire cart was turned over on the sidewalk by the police because street vendors were not authorized at that time in Los Angeles. Did she cry with rage watching all the wasted food on the ground knowing how much it cost her to invest in her day's work? Did it set her back a day or a week each time her cart was tossed to come and get us? I don't think that I could have taken such a cruel and common occurrence. The whole event of us crossing the border was like a movie. A wealthy Caucasian woman doing business in Tijuana would regularly get paid to smuggle people in her limousine for the coyote my mother hired. It wasn't out of kindness, no. We were simply her additional income. All I knew is she smelled like cigarettes. She was cold in the manner in which she spoke to us and emotionally detached from the entire situation. Whenever I met her gaze, I saw disgust, and it made me feel ashamed even though I wasn't sure what exactly I had done wrong. Her entire business was a con, an elaborate scheme where everyone benefited if it went well. The documents used as birth certificates or permits belonged to the women's own children, and my mother's papers 
were someone's forged documents or potentially someone's stolen identity. We all had a part to play. It was decided that my mother would play the woman's nanny and the children, aka us, were the women's kids. It was perfect. The coyote drugged us so we would be asleep when we crossed. And the border patrol agents would not ask us any questions that would give us away since we only spoke Spanish. The woman, she played herself. She was, well, she was white, English-speaking, and American. She spoke with confidence and wore her entitlement loudly to where no one questioned her. Even at that age, I remember wondering how she must feel to walk the world without asking permission to exist. And I envied her. We crossed the border late on a busy Saturday night when all partygoers and business owners are returning from whatever they had to do in Tijuana. I remember falling asleep and then being shaken awake by my mom early the next morning. We had traveled north of the border through the night safely. When I woke up, the limousine doors opened and we groggily stepped out of the car. The limousine drove off and we never saw those people again. We were left in a parking lot and there were only a few cars around. The sun was starting to come up and it was chilly. I remember the smell the most because it smelled dirty. The faint smell of smog seemed to want to asphyxiate me. I felt groggy and a bit nauseous. The air was both different and awful in contrast to my pueblo's clean, fresh morning air. Before I could ask my mom any questions or finish taking in my surroundings, a car pulled up, and out of it walked my dad. He looked genuinely happy to see us. He hugged and kissed us and seemed to watch my mother carefully, looking for something I still to this day can't quite place. She barely met his gaze. Despite that sudden and awkward reunion, the four of us went inside the restaurant, which I now know to be McDonald's, and we all shared two home meals together. It was the first American food that I can remember eating, and it tasted different than what I ate back home with my grandparents. To this day, when I eat an egg McMuffin, I get nostalgic and remember exactly how I felt the first time I had it. The joy I experienced from being in the same room with both my parents after such a long time and my little brother was overwhelming. Seeing everyone happy felt like we may just make it this time. But that would not be the case. The honeymoon period only lasted a few weeks, and the beatings and domestic violence against my mother continued. My dad started dabbling in cocaine and even heroin at some point along with his ongoing drinking problem. My mom, as usual, was just working and putting up with it all, allowing herself to shrink more and more each day into an almost unrecognizable shell of a person. As a kid, I never saw my mother as tender. She never showed me any physical affection, but I saw her hug and kiss my little brother constantly. Around me, she was always firm, direct, and sometimes even cold. Somehow it became ingrained in my mind that my mom just felt that he needed her affection more than I did, not knowing, of course, that I had been through hell and back when we were apart. Naturally, I grew up resenting her. If she did try to ever show affection towards me when I was older, I would reject it. I pushed her away because by then, I too had turned into a firm, 
direct, cold and detached shell of what once was a child. The only affection I ever wanted was my dad's, which of course he was incapable of giving me. So as life would have it, I always felt alone and inadequate. When I was seven, I was sexually abused again by one of my dad's junkie friends. And I kept it quiet because I was terrified of what might happen if I told someone. The last thing I needed was my dad going on a bender and hurting someone, or worse, blaming my mother somehow and potentially killing her because he was capable of it. He had proven that on multiple occasions. So I carried on as normal. And if you knew me then, you would have thought I was the happy outgoing kid who was way too responsible for her age. But deep down, no one knew I hated my entire existence, even as a child. At age eight, despite my parents' volatile and violent marriage, they had another child, my youngest brother. I was so enraged because why would they do this? Why would they bring another kid into this world? Why would they do that when we barely had enough to survive? We slept on the floor, we couldn't afford beds, and now where was this child going to fit? How are we going to feed him or provide for him? Who was going to protect him when no one felt we needed protection? Of course, I didn't know, nor would I be able to understand at that age, that sexual education was frowned upon in poor Mexican Catholic households. I was asking questions that my mother herself could not answer, and my simple solution that my mother refused my father is laughable now, knowing what I know about men, particularly violent men. As the eldest daughter and as a female in a Mexican household, I was required to do the diaper changes, the bottle feedings, the laundry, the dishes, the cleaning, the babysitting and fill all gender specific roles at a young age. I became a parent myself. My little brother was my baby. And my summers were spent indoors because my mother worked every single day and my father would disappear for months at a time. I took my little brother to his first day of kindergarten. I was 13 at the time, and I sat in the classroom for an hour until he stopped crying. I cared for his scraped knees and made sure he had all his meals. When I was at school, he was looked after by a babysitter. But I was the one that was responsible for picking him up daily and taking him home for his evening feedings and diaper changes. For the first five years of his life, he was my every waking moment. Of course, my mom cared for him as well. But a self-absorbed child sees things in tunnel vision, and I only focused on the things I was doing and how everything was impacting me. I never resented my brothers. I figured we were in this together, although that was never really the case. No, I saved all my resentment for my mom. As my home life continued to be an absolute disaster day after day, my school life was only slightly better. I got to eat two meals a day there. I learned new things and I played games mostly by myself at recess. I didn't have many friends. I was teased and bullied because for the first year I didn't speak English. Girls would pull my braided hair because I wore it in a single braid that was past my waist, which was apparently an invitation for everyone to tease me. I didn't understand American customs like Valentine's Day or Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. I lived in the real world, 
and the other kids lived in a fantasy that I just couldn't be a part of. Living in this reality would catch up to me decades later when I became a parent myself. I always found it strange that I was not fully accepted even as a child because about 98% of the kids at my school were Latino. I looked like them, and somehow I didn't. Somehow I had fallen into the lower class of Latino children who were categorized as unworthy. It hurt to be treated that way when all I saw was kindness, but I left the hurt there at school. I never took it home or mentioned it to anyone because there was no room for it. I had other issues to deal with at home and I treated these as two separate worlds never to overlap with one another. I think if they collided, I would have broken. My third, fourth, and fifth grade teachers were amazing. They knew that I needed extra help in English, and as bilingual speakers themselves, they helped me quickly get removed from the English as Second Language curriculum, also known as ESL. Being in ESL alone made me a target for jokes, so it was important that they worked with me to improve my reading, writing, and speaking ability to get out, mostly because I wanted to stop being bullied. They also tried to get me into better schools. They used to send letters home telling my mom I was extremely smart and I would benefit from additional educational resources. I always put them in the trash when they arrived. That life was not for us. My mom taught me my entire life that we needed to be discreet, never to be seen or heard. We couldn't call attention to ourselves. She had ingrained into my mind that people in positions of authority could never know how we lived or how we came here to this country unless we wanted to be taken away from her again, which, as you know, was not far-fetched at all. And as much as I hated to dim myself for the world, I couldn't imagine being split up from her again. As much resentment as I had for her and as little affection I experienced, I somehow knew in my heart and soul that she would give her life for me if she had to. Secretly, my mom was always my safe space. I grew up this way, loving life but refusing to be a part of it, making friends with kind people but never telling them anything real. It was all superficial because they could never understand. I was an evasive kid who knew anything was acceptable except telling the truth. My middle brother and I started to drift apart when I became a teenager. Naturally, we fought daily and our fights were extremely physical at points. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it because that was all I knew, and he was younger and smaller than I was, until he wasn't. Suddenly, the stark realization that he was becoming violent and abusive with me and I with him, I realized we were trapped in this cycle of violence, and I was terrified we would never overcome it. He hated me, or at least I felt that he did, but I never understood why, and to be honest, to date, I've never asked him. But our closeness from when we were little faded and we couldn't stand to be around one another. I still carry physical scars from our fights, as I'm sure he does as well. And to this day, we love each and would do whatever we needed to do to help one another when the other called. But the static of what we experience will always remain between us. By the time I started high school, my little brother was no longer my baby. And he rarely spoke to me. I know now that he was afraid of me. He was afraid of my attentive glare and afraid of my quiet composure in times of distress. 
As the baby of the family, he had a very different upbringing. He was shielded from the violence and he experienced my dad sober. Still drinking, but he was no longer using drugs when he was growing up. The physical altercations with my mom were never witnessed by him. He had two older siblings who made sure to take him outside to play when they happened or put on a loud movie for him. We protected him, and he grew up as a super sweet and vulnerable kid. He wasn't forced into maturity, wasn't built with a tough exterior, and as a natural-born citizen, he never got the same talks my other brother and I did about hiding. He was told he could be anything, accomplish it all, be someone. Meanwhile, I was focused on surviving. My brothers simply didn't need me anymore. As a young woman growing up in Echo Park, Los Angeles, I had to keep my head on a swivel at all times. The streets I lived in were plagued with gangs and drugs and alcohol. They all came easy. Seeing my own father go through addictions, I knew I never wanted anything to do with any of it. The way I saw it, drugs were not something I needed to experiment with. I got to witness them firsthand. And I knew that I never wanted to turn into what they turn you into. My parents never talked to me like normal parents do. In Latino households, we don't talk about sex, drugs, or drinking. We just pretend like these things don't exist and look the other way when they happen. Most of our parents never got talked to either. The lack of discussion and awareness is probably why teenage pregnancies are so prevalent in these neighborhoods. I never got talked to about boys but I knew what men were capable of since I was five. Men and boys were always crossing lines, and I felt like I was constantly fighting to exist without being objectified by them. As a child, it was such a confusing thing to experience feeling that way. As always, school was easy. My parents never attended any parent-teacher conferences or even checked my report cards, but I had straight A's for the most part. I did my homework without ever being told, and I ditched classes like anyone else when they were boring. My teachers hated that I had, quote-unquote, no aspirations, as they put it, and that I was a waste of potential. They never asked me, though. They never asked me why I cared and at the same time didn't. It just infuriated them. Had they asked, I may have felt like I had an outlet. Someone I could tell all of the horrible things I experienced to. But I was treated so poorly by most of my teachers in high school. Something about me made them so angry with me, and their backhanded compliments never escaped me. All the while, so many adults in my life continued to take advantage of me, or worse, did everything possible to undermine my existence. When I was 16 years old, I was almost pulled into the passenger seat of a car when a man asked me for directions right outside of school on my way to basketball practice. I remembered the disgusting shit he whispered into my ear as he choked me with the strap of my own gym bag, which I wore across my body and is what he was using as leverage to pull me into his car. I honestly thought, this is it. This is the worst thing that is ever going to happen to me until the strap suddenly snapped, causing me to fall forward on my knees as I gasped for air. I got up before I could form any thoughts, and I ran in the direction of the main entrance trying to scream, but not able to due to how hard he had squeezed on my throat. I ran straight into a friend who was headed to football practice himself, 
and he asked me what was wrong. I was speechless, just frantically crying, and he immediately took me to the security office down the hall. The police officer looked at me unfazed by what I was saying and asked me for a description of the man. I told him, white, male, thin, and he immediately scoffed at me and said, a white dude in this neighborhood? That's odd. I knew then at that point that it wasn't worth it. I wiped the tears from my face as I turned around and walked out of the office. I went back to the sidewalk where my broken gym bag was, picked it up, tied the broken strap back into place with a knot, and went to practice. I was hoarse and bruised for weeks, and no one noticed or cared to ask why. I never told anyone. No one except the friend I ran into, but he didn't see anything. I think he also didn't believe me, so I never brought it up again. I took this as just another thing that could only happen to me. They say that once you're victimized, your odds of being re-victimized are extremely high. I don't understand that statistic or how that happens. Do we look different once we become victims? Or do we simply look lonely, sad, or vulnerable? I pretended to move on, as always, but I never forgot, and to date, I can't just walk down a street carelessly. I don't wear bags or purses across my body. I don't wear necklaces without feeling suffocated. I don't like being out alone, and I never feel safe. Not fully. Years of watching opportunities go past me. Bad things happen in front of me. And no one ever truly seeing me took a toll. I didn't realize how angry I had grown. Angry that I happened to have what seemed like the worst luck in the world. Bound for some tragic ending. I felt as if I would never amount to anything. And on several occasions, so did everyone else. My art teacher, a conservative woman, once held me back after class just to tell me that I was dressed like a slut because I wore a black bra under my white shirt. Standing next to her was my English teacher, nodding in agreeance at everything being said to me. I stood there feeling the tears well up in my eyes and I felt so small. A friend who refused to leave me behind alone because she could sense something was wrong stood there in absolute disbelief as I was spoken to in this manner. Unbeknownst to the two teachers, I only had one bra. My dad chased us out of our home two nights before with a knife in yet another attempt to kill us, and we slept in our car in a grocery store parking lot. I was wearing a white shirt because it was what my mom was able to grab when we ran out. I wasn't choosing to wear a black bra because I was a slut or because I wanted attention. I was wearing what I was wearing because we were poor and living out of a car. Being called a slut by other so-called educated women stung. But admitting that I had nothing was somehow worse. And so I owned their insults and I told them that if I wanted to be a slut, it was none of their damn business. They sent me to the dean's office and by the following day, everyone knew I said I was a slut. I had to sit in both their classes for two years and know exactly how they saw me. 
I watched them both write letters of recommendation for other students' college applications during our junior and senior years of high school and tell them that they would do great things someday. One of them laughed when I requested to take her AP English class as if I could have any use for a college-level course that could be best suited for someone who was actually college-bound. I could not reconcile their demeanor towards me, their disdain. No matter my efforts, they both made up their minds about me long before I ever spoke. And sometimes, I believed that they might be right about me. Right that I was destined for nothing. I grew up believing I would never own nice things because I was quote-unquote an illegal immigrant. I would not have a fancy job where I would be respected for my intellect, nor would I experience the beautiful side of life, the good side. I was angry that with good grades, my prospects for a future were still absolute shit. But I could never share this with my mom, because to her, I was the first in my family to have these opportunities. I was supposed to be thankful. I often wondered, what the hell for? What was the point of it all? I was still in hiding. I had no voice. I had aspirations to be greater than this life, but I did not say them out loud because if I was heard, my life would be over. My mom resented me as much as I did her. In reverse, she wished she had the opportunities I did. To be able to achieve a high school education and speak two languages, not having to grow up knowing my life was reduced to the pueblo where I was born. I should have been thankful, but all I could ever tell her was how much I hated her. And her most common and hurtful insult was always, igualita que tu padre, just like your dad. Knowing how my father was and how much she must have hated him for the vile things he did to her, I couldn't think of a worse thing to say to your only daughter. My mom and dad did eventually divorce when I was 17, but the damage they caused was beyond repair. I had no clue what a healthy relationship looked like. I didn't even understand how two people could ever love each other because all I ever felt was anger and rage. So it didn't make a difference to me when they split up. I felt nothing. I was just glad I didn't have to watch my mom get the life beat out of her anymore. And to this day, I can't empathize when children get sad about their parents' divorce. I see these scenarios play out in movies, and the concept alone is completely foreign to me. I try, but it's impossible. My instinct always tells me, they're better off and so are you. Sometimes I still think I'm broken for having these feelings. Things only worsened the older I got, mostly because my brother and I became more and more volatile towards one another. I hated him too, but mostly I hated how he and my mother always seemed to agree on how it was they felt about me. How she could walk into the middle of an argument and immediately ask me what I had done wrong, insinuating that I always started everything. She told me to leave if I was unhappy, knowing I had nowhere to go. But at age 17, she told me to go for the last time. And I grabbed my clothes, and I left. In the middle of the night, with nowhere to go, I slept outside of a Burger King and cried most of the night. Until a homeless man asked me if I was okay. And for some reason, I told him. 
I sobbed to this complete stranger and told him everything I could never say to anyone else. He listened and he cried with me and told me that he was very sorry. That's when I knew. This was my lowest point of self-absorption and self-pity. This man had clearly led a very difficult life and lived under the worst of circumstances. And yet he was here comforting me. In the end, I ended up moving in with a guy I was dating at the time. I didn't care for him the way he cared for me. He was not a good person. And it seemed that perhaps neither was I. And we were destined to be with one another because he was exactly what I deserved. This is the guy I married. And on the day of our wedding in the house of a notary, I invited my mom to attend, hoping she would tell me that I didn't have to do this, that I could walk right out at any time and that I could come home with her, that she was sorry. She did come, but she didn't say any of those things. She believed he was good for me because she didn't know him. She only knew the mask he wore in public. She believed he would settle me and my dreams and lead me to a life of complacency and satisfaction. But she did cry. I saw her. And I think she cried because deep down, she knew that this would most likely kill me. That I was suffocating and wilting away on the inside. That if the day ever came when I gave in, my spirit would be crushed. She knew. A mother always knows. It was only a few months in before my husband cheated on me. And a few months later before he punched me. It would be a few more months before he choked me into unconsciousness. But I had nowhere to run to. I didn't have a safe space anymore. And I was afraid my mom would blame me because of my temper and our cultural lessons on the roles of men and women. Nothing could ever be the men's fault. Because it is our job as women to ensure their joy. Although I was suffering... I also knew my mom and I were not ready to own up to our mistakes at that point in our lives. We were not ready to apologize to each other. This is why, when an opportunity presented itself for me to apply for residency via my husband, I took it. I applied as an adult for residency seven months after my 18th birthday. A law absolved me of my quote-unquote parents' crimes because they brought me here illegally against my will, and I was able to apply independently from them. This meant I did not have to provide information on my parents, which really meant that my mom and my brother would remain safe from immigration knowing their whereabouts and risk deportation. It was only a few months before a letter from them arrived in response to my petition. I thought it was good news, but instead... I was notified that I was getting deported. They offered me a voluntary departure within 30 days. If I didn't comply, I would be forcefully removed from the country. While the 18 years would not be held against me as a federal crime, the seven months would, and so I lost the ability to remain in this country while my case was called for review meaning I had to exit the country and remain in Mexico until USCIS decided whether I deserved to remain here or not. I broke down completely because I was only a child, still 19, 
And this was just way too much for me to bear. But at the same time, I had graduated school and all my friends had gone off to college in pursuit of their careers, their lives, and their futures. And I was stuck in this limbo where shit just got worse while never actually changing. Not to mention, I was married to an absolute psychopath. So I did what I had to. I packed my bags, told my mom what I was doing, and despite her pleading, her crying, her begging, I left for Mexico. I left back to the country where I was born but didn't know. My husband was deployed at the time. He was a Marine serving in Fallujah on his second tour and couldn't stop me. But the day I left Mexico, I also left him. He and I both knew I would never come back to him. And I know even if he was home, he wouldn't have stopped me. I believe that he thought then that he truly loved me. But the truth is, he simply needed me the same way I needed him. It was an unhealthy obsession where I needed him to fuel my hatred for my mother and the world. And he needed me to take his PTSD out on. I know in my heart I wouldn't have survived staying. I was so broken. And if my life wasn't taken by him, I most likely would have done it myself. At that point, I had no purpose or reason for living on this earth. I was completely alone. Loved and known by no one. My name would have easily been forgotten by all, and I wouldn't have left a trace on this world. At least, that's how I felt. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the first part of The First Chingona. Part 2 is already posted in the library, so don't panic. I'm not going to make you wait any longer so that you guys can find out what happens with the rest of the story. I hope that you enjoyed the content that I have created for you and that you continue to follow, subscribe, and review the show. I can't thank you all enough for sticking around and just supporting me in this endeavor. I've never felt so much love from my friends and family and even perfect strangers. I love you guys so much, and I hope that you keep listening. Adios. Adios.